So questions, comments? Touch on chin for a There were a lot of years in my life where uh, I wasn't aware of like the patterns, like the um, ignorance of going into a coffee shop and getting coffee and down in You know, and I see that uh, a lot of people in the world live their life like that, you know? And I would like to be able to uh, maybe like, I don't know, assist in maybe teaching them that that's what they're doing without stepping on people's toes, you know? Because a lot of people, when you, when you bring that type of be behavior to them and you point it out, they almost get, get, get offended, you know, you can say anything to them. So like, how do you, um, how do you bring, bring, bring that awareness to people that don't want that awareness being brought up? We watch the desire about wanting to bring it to them. <laughs> 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 and it sounds like I'm just being cheeky, but it's true. We have to actually start where we're at. And if we're wanting to do is to help other people, we need to watch our own hunger to help. Yeah? And drop in. Where is that coming from? And I imagine it's mixed. There's a mix of all kinds of reasons where it's coming from. For myself, when I'm wanting to help, sometimes it's because there's a longing to be useful or to be valued or to not wanting to be present for the suffering of watching them fall on their face and eat mud. You know, I don't like that. So it's my discomfort I'm wanting to have less of. <laughs> and when I can focus on the, my discomfort that I'm wanting to have less of, then I have more patience for their process and more respect for the relationship that I have with them. You know? So, you know, I'm a teacher. But even as a teacher, I'm extremely careful when I get into students' faces in terms of saying, you know, because it takes an enormous amount of trust, and they have to be willing and happy for me to be engaged with them on that level. And that takes a lot of discernment to know when a person trusts you enough to actually have you be pointing out things to them. And it can take a long time. And with some people, it's like, forget it. Like with your family members, your parents, <laughs> your brothers and sisters, it's your wife, it's like, once every hundred years, there's a window that opens, and then it closes, and then you have to wait another hundred years for it. And then, until it opens up, what you can do is embody the alternative. You can't verbalize it. You can show up with it as an embodied living experience. But if you try and verbalize it, you are asking for big trouble. <laughs> and rightly so, it's not your business. You know? <laughs> you say there's a point where you get to have a choice, and some people believe that we don't actually have free will because of the nature of our brains. At some point, do we have free will, or don't we? I guess it's, it's, a, it's a hard question. <laughs> So I deal with things as an experiential, uh, in an experiential way rather than in a philosophical or neuroscientific way. Okay? And what I know is, is, is that habits of thought condition habits of thought. So that the more that we get angry, the more we're likely to get angry. 
the more we put our attention on joy and gratitude, then the more we're likely to experience gratitude and joy. So where we place our attention determines the way in which the patterns are firing. The patterns of firing determines the likelihood those patterns are going to fire again. Okay? So when you've got a deep trench, water's going to run that way. That's its nature. If you want to dig another deep trench, it's possible, but it takes effort, and you need to know a little bit about the way water flows, right? Because if you're just trying to dig another deep trench without actually knowing the way water flows and having some sense of the terrain, it's true that you might have the intention, but it's not actually going to give a good result, right? So these things are not just philosophical things. There's understanding how you place your attention and how the choices that you are making are impacting you in terms of the next choice that comes along. In terms of the absolute philosophical question about whether or not we have free choice or not, I'm not interested in that conversation. Because to me it's not relevant. Because I see the places where I do have choice, and those places where I do have choice, I want to work with them. Yes? Yes. Yes, so the quality of resilience also has to do with making really clear choices about where you're placing your attention. So when our systems get overloaded and our system feels like we're caving in, then we need to be very careful about what our next choices are. Because our next choices, depending on how crashed we are, is going to make a big difference. So, when there's some kind of a trauma response that's being activated, it needs to be, um, there's a particular sequence of things that are really helpful to do, and there's a bunch of things that are super not helpful to do, and understanding the difference really helps support resilience. Okay? When our systems are depleted, it's important to know that we need to re-nourish, we need to replenish. And one of the problems with a, an academic institution like Harvard, I'm imagining, is, is that the pressure is so intense such a lot of the time that in order to actually survive the class load, you have to come into a kind of dysfunctional relationship with your own instincts. And so then you're working against the stream in terms of what you actually need somatically in order to function as a a somewhat healthy human being in contradiction to what is expected in order to get through a, a semester. So, to develop resiliency is first of all to know that you're in a setup that's set up that way for whatever reasons, and then to do the best that you can. So, to do the best that you can knows that you're not going to be able to get it 100% right, but to do it of the best you can means that you're not going to buy in hook, line, and sinker to the expectations of the course load as demands that you place on yourself. That you're going to have to find ways of backing off and easing off and self-nourishing, self-regulating. And sometimes it doesn't take a lot of time, it just takes making that choice. So when you're brain dead and you can't focus and you can't think, rather than pushing to try and get through the assignment, go put your feet on the grass, lean up against a tree, lie on the ground. Spend three minutes breathing deeply. Take a ten-minute nap. 
and then see what happens at the end of that. So rather than just pushing through, expecting that at the end of pushing it's going to somehow feel better, realize the pushing is not helping and that you need to do something different. And at the end of that, you'll find a way. There's a book, it's called Bouncing Back by Linda Graham. It's all about the resiliency and it's fabulous. She's got great things in there. But the primary thing is to recognize when we're in overload. And that's awareness and register. Overload has a very different texture to it than just balance and ease and comfort and well-being. And understanding overload is part of the way to, to self-correct with it. So it's um, 6.30, so if anyone wants to leave now, now is a good time. But if you'd like to hang out and answer more, ask more questions or spend more time together, you're welcome. But please don't feel like it's impolite to get up and leave. This is what we had, we had signed up for. Maybe I just might make an announcement for those folks who, who need to head out. There are flyers in the back. There's a panel discussion at film screen for Buddha's Forgotten Hands. Please feel free to take with you a flyer. Also, there's retreat information for a retreat that um, is going to be holding. That information's in the back. And we've also left the basket for Donna, which is the um, Pali or Sanskrit term for generosity. And in the Tarabot tradition, Teachers uh, offer the teachings freely, and this is a way of acknowledging that if something moves you and you feel that you're able to contribute, um, it's a way of acknowledging both the, the goodness of the teachings and your very own goodness. So that's an opportunity to experience that practice. And, that. and if you're wanting to know more about the things that I'm doing, I encourage you to sign up for the e-list. And um, the, there's a retreat that's coming up next month. There's also going to be a similar retreat next June in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. So if the Love, Sexuality, and Awakening retreat is of interest, mark your calendars, June of next year. I've got the dates and I don't remember them. Typical. More comments, questions? Things to talk about? Yes. In a trauma rela- reaction, what's really important is not to lock in on the negative feeling. That's really important. So, in meditation instructions, people often tell you to sit still and focus on what's arising. When you're having a trauma reaction, that's the opposite of what you need to do. You don't need to sit still. You need to be able to do what you need to do with your body. And it's absolutely not helpful to focus on the terrible feelings that are arising. What's important is to find some safety, some ease, and then very carefully and very judiciously oscillate between those feelings of safety and ease and touching the physical feeling that gets activated with the trauma response, okay? Only long enough to register it in order to uh, allow it and then to help it to shift and then come back into that peaceful, relaxed, peaceful feeling. And if you're not familiar with how to do that, then don't try doing it on your own. Find somebody who's professional, who knows how to help hold you with that, because if you don't hold that balance rightly, then what can happen is you can re-traumatize yourself it can make it worse 
and solidify the pattern that makes you feel um, completely unsafe. Okay? Because my system is super sensitive, I, I tend to try and avoid doctors as much as possible. Because most of the time, uh, I don't find them very helpful. I find chiropractors and energy workers and alternative people more able to attune to what's going on and support. Yeah. But I have doctors, and I have ability to go to doctors, and it's just my own stuff around doctors that keeps me from going. Yeah. But, you know, it can be the case, like some of the health practitioners that I see, they offer their treatments without charge, which makes it wonderful in a person's situation like mine is, where, you know, I, I don't have a salary, you know, I don't have a regular income. So some people are very sympathetic, and that's lovely. But what you're pointing to is actually not a trivial topic because in order for a monastic community to survive or to flourish, basic things like shelter and food and health care need to be accessible. And in our North American circumstance, Obamacare doesn't have any dispensation for monastics. So if we don't have any income, we're not eligible for any tax credits. So if we want to get health insurance, we have to pay full rates. And so, you know, what I would love is somebody to say, hey, wait a minute, you know, there's actually a, you know, a population of people who are living a very specialized lifestyle in service of the community. And one of the things that would be supportive to them is to not have to have them have, you know, to figure out another system. But right now we don't have any break at all for Obamacare because we I don't, I don't earn any money. So for, for monastics to flourish, it requires support. And the places where it has flourished in the past has been where there has been support that's been built into the infrastructure of the place that they've been living. In Thailand, they have hospitals for monastics. And so monastics can go and get free treatment. And, you know, when there are, is a growing appreciation for the value of monastics, then it might be that there'll be more programs and things like that that are available. So like in Thailand, you know, a fully ordained monastic gets half price off um, certain transportation and 100% price off other transportation and free admittance to certain things. And there's hospitals and uh, all kinds of services that are available. 
because the society recognizes that the value that they're contributing to the society. So as bhikkhunis, you know, we're in a situation where it's, it's early, early, early days, and, you know, there's still just only first beginnings of people having any sense of who we are and what we might have to offer to the community. Yeah. Yes? Um, go to a one-day retreat or get a buddy and make a commit to sit practice where you agree to sit every day for however long and you text each other so that you've made a commitment and you let each other know when you're doing it and so that you feel a sense of um, it's not only about your practice, it's also about the commit that you made to this other person. And if, if that's it, that you haven't actually found the time, those things will help. If it's gone stale because your practice actually wasn't serving you very well, then that's a different question. And sometimes what happens is, again, we have this idea about what meditation practice is supposed to look like. And so, you know, I don't know your personal circumstance. So I don't know if you're a student and you spend a lot of time in classes or not. But a student who spends a lot of time in classes and a lot of time on the computer, you know, you're not going to want, your body is not going to be ecstatic about going home and sitting, you know. What you need to do is to bring some balance and some renewal into your body. And then from that place, see what posture is the best posture to be in that lets your mind open and relax and drop in. So rather than having an incredibly narrow box that you push yourself in, begin to see, well, what's the context of your life and what actually is being asked for? So that when you respond to that, then it becomes alive and responsive rather than um, rigid and uh, lifeless. So it can go stale for either of those reasons. But, you know, when you are doing something that you absolutely love to do, it's not that hard to find time for it. Please. Yeah, I think I, I actually, I do sit. And so it's not the time piece that is troublesome to me. And I look forward to it because it is a lovely break from school. Um, but I think if I'm I mean, I find my mind wondering about the story of meditation, of course, in some ways, but I also find, um, I find myself enjoying the sitting itself, but having a lot more difficulty actually being present for the experience, I guess. Almost like I tell myself, oh good, you're going to go sit and meditate, but I'm actually not sitting or meditating at all. <laughs> so, you know, for many people, for decades, we use meditation as an escape. You know, it's a time to kind of shut down and turn off and to kind of disappear. And it's like a retreat from the chaos and the impingement. And, you know, what's happening is there's a regurgitation of impressions and sensations and thoughts and feelings and conversations and emotions. And it's sort of like this. Yeah? Now, there is a way in which you can just be present with all of this. And that's actually healing. There's a way in which you can be shutting down with all of that and it's not helping. And so what's needed is a discernment about when you're sitting, which is it? 
Now, if life is overfull and the amount of impact and sensations and conversations and stuff is, is too much to process, then it's absolutely natural that at any moment when you pause, that the stuff that hasn't been processed is going to come up. That's healing, okay? That's natural, and that's important. But if there isn't enough quiet time, then all you get in the meditation is the regurgitation process of what didn't get processed during the day or the week or until the last time you really cleared out. And that feels frustrating because it doesn't feel like there's anything about this that's, that's further. It feels like it's maintenance, but it doesn't feel like it's deep. And so having times where you carve out space, where you drop in for longer periods of time so you can touch the juiciness of quiet, where there, you aren't just regurgitating, you're actually deeply well in stillness and quiet and the, and the, and the pleasure of, of not having 10,000 things to do. Yeah. And so I don't know what's realistic in your schedule, you know, but I know that for me, I have to make time and safeguard it like a bear because life has a way of saying that there's 10,000 things that are urgent and you need to take care of them all the time. And it's like, well, I'm just sorry. I'm not available, you know? Tough. You're going to have to live without me. The universe is going to have to revolve without me for a day, you know? And do it regularly enough so that I have a pattern of it and I just protect it, that it's like, I don't do things on my quiet day, you know? But I don't know what that looks like in university, you know, maybe during break time, you know, or maybe, you know, there's a couple hours every week where you just have a couple hours that is just absolutely for you to do exactly what you need to unwind, you know. Yeah. I'm um, sitting with your response about um, the quality of a place like Thailand which sees the contributions of monastics and responds with uh, privileging a particular kind of health care, a particular kind of opportunity. And uh, on the one hand, appreciating the understanding of what monastics offer. And at the same time, feeling that shouldn't that be true for everybody? And I also think that open care is deeply flawed for having to create a system where some have to contribute in order to benefit from it, as opposed to the notion of universal health care, where simply by being the extraordinarily brilliant human beings that we are, what we have to contribute, we create a society in which our needs are met. So I'm more interested in the example of how monastics could be treated as being uh, a statement about how everyone ought to be treated, as opposed to the sense of kind of creating a special class of monastics who deserve this, setting it apart. So I'm just curious about how you think about that. It's a beautiful point. It's a beautiful point. And, you know, I'm a visionary, but I don't have a lot of strategic kinds of um, um, how to go from the, here to there. So 
the, the vision that I have is creating a Dharma village where this is what's happening, that the people who are living in the Dharma village have their needs met. It's not that only some people have their needs met, everyone has their needs met. And it, when everybody has their needs met, their energy is free to work on, uh, on things that are, are important, you know. I don't know how to, to put that into practice in terms of I don't know how to make it happen other than to see the value of it and to talk about it and then to see my understanding or my senses is that this might happen in, in small constellations and then if it feels like it's working in a good way, then it'll start to spread. I don't know how to make it a universal thing for everybody from the beginning. It's, it's too big for me to figure out how to do that. But what I, I do sense is, is that, you know, with basic needs, we, we do need to find a way to get them met. And that it isn't that it's just only certain people should have the privilege to have them met. I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. One last question. of the monastics is definitely a situation of privilege. And the monastics oftentimes protect that with fierce whatevers. And so if anybody is cutting across their whatever, you, you know about it. And so that was part of the problem that the nuns were in, is, is that we were in competition with the monks in a weird way. And they were not happy about that. And that was not because, you know, they wanted to protect their privileged position. They did not want to share power. And that was clear. So it's a lovely idea, but I don't see it actually panning out very often. And one of the places where I would love to find another model is that in the, in the monasteries that I lived in, a huge amount of incredible value was in those monasteries in terms of the way that we lived and the, and the simplicity that we lived and the living on generosity in the way that we lived. But one of the things that was concerning me was is that the, the monastics were the only people who had input into the wisdom component of the communities. So the monasteries were a spiritual oasis for everybody who came. But it was governed by the monastics. And so anytime you've got a situation where one people is governing for everybody without the input of everybody, you've got a problem. And so what would happen after 10, 15, 20, 30 years is that the lay people eventually would feel disenfranchised because there was no place for their wisdom to be shared 
in a way that would input or change the governance of the community that they had been completely connected to and that was supporting their spiritual nourishment. So my sense is that what's needed is a different governance model that has monks and nuns and lay people in the leadership position that then can have input from everybody that's in the community. It doesn't make sense in a, in a North American world where we have such a value of democracy to privilege wisdom based on precepts. That does not wash. And in Thailand it would. No one would ever, ever argue that, that, that as a lay person that they had a right to tell the abbot or encourage the abbot to do things a particular way. You know? Or want to like be part of a discussion and vote. That would not happen. Yeah. So more questions and I think we need to close. So tomorrow there's gonna be the Buddhist Forgotten Nuns, which is a documentary on um, the the Kuni movement and some of the controversy and it shows the monasteries that I lived in for 20 years. So both Chithurst and Amravati are in that, uh, featured in that documentary. So if you're interested or curious about um, a larger perspective, that's a, a very worthwhile documentary to see. And then the conversation afterwards should be riveting. Janet Gyatso and Janet Suri and myself and Betty are going to be part of that. So wonderful. And thank you so much for your attention and your interest in coming this evening. Wonderful. Yes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.